Well, we're in 1 Samuel chapter number 8 today. Um, I could return to the book of Acts for, for one sermon and then jump into my um, Christmas series. But I decided that I was going to preach a message I just rewrote for a revival that I preached two weeks ago in Arizona. And so I wrote this message out of 1 Samuel 8 and I felt like the Lord would have me to preach it today under that title, God is great, but here we are a couple of days removed from Thanksgiving and everybody knows that the whole week of Thanksgiving, it's really easy to say God is great. That's the holiday. That's the point of it. Especially if you're a Christian, you are to give thanks to God for all things. We preached about it last Sunday morning. Everything that hath breath should praise the Lord. And we talked about that. But after Thanksgiving, is God still great to you? Is God as great today as he was on Thursday? It's really easy, is it not? Really easy to let a calendar holiday slip by and then our thoughts of God aren't as great as they were even three days ago. We're we're going to dive into this chapter that shows us that this nation called Israel had God as their king. God of the universe chose this one group of people, the Hebrew people. They didn't even choose him initially. He chose them while they were in Egyptian bondage. He chose them to be his people. He was their king, but yet the greatness of God wore off to them. They didn't want to get rid of God entirely. They just wanted to add to God an earthly king like all the other nations had. And that's what we do. We don't, here's the the religious way of of rejecting God. The irreligious way of rejecting God is they just subtract him totally. The religious way of, of, of rejecting God, we don't subtract him, we add to him. Somewhere along the line, he isn't enough for us. And so we try to find earthly kings of our own making to allow us to be satisfied and, and, and secure and find identity. So we're going to preach on this thought today. Look at chapter eight and, and look at verses number four. And then we'll read just a few verses to get us started. And we'll jump into the sermon today. Then all the elders of Israel gathered themselves together and came to Samuel unto Ramah. And said unto him, Behold, thou art old, and thy sons walk not in thy ways. Now make us a king to judge us like all the nations. But the thing displeased Samuel. When they said, Give us a king to judge us. And Samuel prayed unto the Lord. And the Lord said unto Samuel, Hearken unto the voice of the people, and all that they say unto thee. For they have not rejected thee, but they have rejected me that I should not reign over them. According to all the works which they have done since the day that I brought them up out of Egypt, even unto this day wherewith they have forsaken me and served other gods, so do they also unto thee. Now therefore hearken unto their voice. Howbeit, yet protest solemnly unto them and show them the manner of the king that shall reign over them. I'm going to just read the rest just because it's good. Verse 10. And Samuel told all the words of the Lord unto the people that asked of him a king. Look how he describes the king that they want. He said, this will be the manner of the king that shall reign over you. He will take your sons 
And he'll appoint them for himself, for his chariots, to be his horsemen. And some shall run before his chariots. And he will appoint him captains over thousands and captains over fifties and will set them to ear his ground and to reap his harvest and to make his instruments of war and instruments of his chariots. And he will take your daughters to be confectionaries and to be cooks and to be bakers. He will take your fields and your vineyards and your olive yards, even the best of them, and give them to his servants. And he will take the tenth of your seed and of your vineyards and give to his officers and to his servants. And he will take your men servants and your maid servants and your goodliest young men and your asses and put them to his work. And he will take the tenth of your sheep and she and ye shall be his servants. Did you notice a key word in there? You want a king? If you get a king, here's what he's going to do. He's going to take. Verse number 18. And ye shall cry out in that day because of your king, which ye shall have chosen you. And the Lord will not hear you in that day. Surely the people are going to wake up. Nevertheless, that's usually a bad word in the Old Testament. Nevertheless, the people refused to obey the voice of Samuel. And they said, nay, no, but we will have a king over us. That we also may be like all the nations and that our king may judge us and go out before us and fight our battles. Samuel heard all the words of the people and he rehearsed them in the ears of the Lord. And the Lord said to Samuel, hearken unto their voice and make them a king. Samuel said unto the men of Israel, go ye every man unto his city. Mm. There's a book that's been recently written called The 90s by Chuck Klosterman. I love the 90s. I was a 90s kid, born in the 80s, but I was a 90s kid. One of the things that he points out is that Generation X will probably go down as the generation who experienced the most technological and scientific shifts in history. He said that Gen Xers, baby boomers, and then what they call exennials, I'm an exennial, fully experienced the world without cell phones and without internet. And they experience the world with both of those things. Okay, how many, how many fall in that category? You've experienced the world with, 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 with and without those things. Raise your hand. All right. Teenagers are like, what are you talking about? <laughs> the land before time is what I'm talking about. It's not just a Disney movie. It's, by the way, that was a boring Disney movie. That was pathetic. What are y'all worried about? You like dinosaurs? Uh, all right, what was I saying? Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. So, so some people experience life without and with these, these conveniences. How many remember when, when the only place you could re- receive a phone call was at home? And you actually had to remember phone numbers. And now you can't even remember your own phone number. If you're waiting on an important phone call, you couldn't even leave the house. And if you had plans... They were fixed because once you left the house, you couldn't change your plans on the road. Unless you had one of them bag phones where you put the antenna on top of the thing, but then that meant you were rich. You wouldn't want to admit that. Um, Literally, there was no like, hey, I'm running five minutes late. You couldn't text and drive. What did you do when you waited for trains in this town? Seriously. What did you do? I mean, did, what did, did you talk to yourself? Did you color? Take a coloring page out? Did you already have? Did you always have French fries? By I mean, what did you do? I mean, seriously, we stop at lights and we pull out our cell phones. 
How many remember when you wanted to, wanted to go on a road trip and there was no Google or Apple Maps? You had to get one of those giant Atlas maps, spread it out, and chart your course. How many marriages almost ended over trying to interpret one of those things? Now, my parents had a great marriage, but, but from the back seat on vacations, I heard some spicy conversations about, you should have taken that exit. No, I shouldn't have. Yes, you should have. Be quiet, woman. You know what I mean? Even worse, you had to actually stop sometimes at a gas station and ask a gas station attendant for directions. And, and, and usually, usually that gas station attendant, he didn't really know what he's talking about. But he's supposed to know what he's talking about, so he tried to reconstruct the journey from memory. So he'd be like, hey, you're going to see this yellow house. And it has this like dying maple tree on the side of the house, I think. I think there might be a tire swing hanging from it. I don't know the name of the street after that house, but you need to turn there. And if you get to Bobby's tire shop, you've gone too far. Right? You're more lost now. And then when you wanted to go on vacation, you didn't research hotels on Expedia. Well, this is when America was good. You had to call an operator. Get the number of the Holiday Inn. And and a lot of times, I don't know how it was for you, but for my family, we didn't really have a bag phone. We were one of those families. And so... We went on vacation and my dad would just stop at a hotel and hope they had rooms. I felt like Mary and Joseph. <laughs> on vacation, my dad would just come out dejected like this. <laughs> Got to go to the next one. We stayed at some raunchy places. Not just because we were poor, but because, I mean, there was no room in the inn, man. Another thing we had to deal with in the 90s is the onset of computer viruses. Right? We didn't have all the fancy programs back then um, to, to kind of keep them out. But we were constantly doing things, if you remember, constantly doing things on our computer that like invited these viruses in to take over the hard drive. Plus, at, at the beginning of the Internet revolution, we were all so gullible. Right? It reminds me of the email I received from the Nigerian prince. <laughs> Did you ever receive one of those? He promised to write you a million dollars, to wire you a million dollars. All you had to do was open up his attachment. I was dumb enough to open up the attachment. One of the worst computer virus stories I ever heard was a guy who was working on his master's degree thesis. And he said he was putting the final touches on his term paper when suddenly he watched as, as every single line of his paper just started like systematically turning into X's and O's. Unbeknownst to him, his computer downloaded this virus that started to erase his entire memory. That was before Google Drives, before automatic backups. His entire paper, which was the grade for the class, was gone. Had to start over. Now, now the reason I take you down this this trip, down, down memory lane, for the younger ones, the land before time, is because in 1 Samuel 8... The nation of Israel, they're they're demanding of God, give us a king. We want to function like all the other nations. And what we just read and what we're going to study is that this king is actually going to function like a computer virus of the 90s. He's going to promise so much. He's going to look so innocent. He's going to seem so appealing. But when it's all said and done, he's going to take over everything. In verse 4 through 6, they send the elders to Samuel the prophet, and they, they demanded, we want a king. It's finally time for us to have a king. Now, let me say this. 
Because you need to understand this from the, from the outside. There is nothing categorically wrong for Israel to ask for a king. This, was a, this is a common misconception. They should never ask in the first place. It's actually not true. Because in Deuteronomy, God had told them that one day he would provide for them a king. In Deuteronomy 17, he even laid out for them what kind of characteristics they should look for in a king. So the problem wasn't in their request for a king. The problem was in their motivation. Namely, their motivation came from a place of fear, not faith. They weren't saying, hey, God, we trust you. We're we're asking for the king you promised. Back in the Torah, you promised us for a king. We think we might have found one, but we want to be careful because we know that we're impulsive and we want to be careful because we know we're biased. So we're surrendered to your timetable. We're surrendered to your choice. Is this your time? Is this your man? They didn't enter into the conversation that way. They felt like they had to have a king and they had had to have him right now. Their motivation is found in verse 5 when they told Samuel, we want a king like all the other nations have. Says it again in the latter part of the chapter. See, when they looked around and the other nations had a king, they seemed to to have this sense of national pride. They seemed to have this sense of identity. They seemed to have this sense of security. And they thought that that was because these nations had an actual physical earthly king. And they didn't have that. All they had were the promises of this invisible God. Well, here's the problem with their motivation. They weren't supposed to be like all the other nations. That was the purpose of the law. They were supposed to be set apart. They were supposed to be different. They they weren't supposed to trust in the size of their army as their security. They had an angel army. They, They weren't to be constantly trying to achieve more in order to establish their identity and give them a sense of meaning. Their relationship with the God of the universe was supposed to be the source of those things. Which is why God spoke up and said what he said in verses 7 through 8. Which basically we read it. God said, listen, these people, Samuel, from the very beginning, I've never been enough for them. They've rejected me from the get-go. And he's right. Think back to when Moses went up to the Mount Sinai to receive the law. Uh, They had just seen, the, the children of Israel had just seen God deliver them miraculously through the Exodus and then destroy this entire Egyptian army in the Red Sea. Yet when Moses was up in the mountain a little longer than they thought he should be up in the mountain and he didn't come down when they thought that he should, they panicked and they ran over to Aaron and they demanded Aaron make them a golden calf so that they could have a God to protect them like all the other nations. Even though God parted waters for them, he still wasn't enough. Then after that, as they made their way through the wilderness, they didn't trust God to take care of them. Even though God promised he was sending them to a land flowing with milk and honey. Even though God every day provided for them miraculously by means of manna spread out all over the floor and gushing water from a rock. In spite of all of that, they still demanded the delicacies of Egypt in order to be satisfied like all the other nations. What's especially ridiculous about this is in the chapters leading up to 1 Samuel 8, God had just defeated Israel's greatest enemy by means of a cart and two cows. In short, God had let the Philistines, that's the perpetual enemy of the nation of Israel, he had let them steal the Ark of the Covenant, a symbol of God's power and presence. 
And he let the Philistines do that because he was punishing Israel for their lack of belief in him and their lack of obedience to him. But just as quickly, he brought the ark back to them. And it's a really entertaining story. After the Philistines had captured the Ark of the Covenant, they went and put it in the temple of their God, which was named Dagon. Well, the next morning they wake up going to the temple and Dagon's statue was laying face down before the Ark with his hands chopped off. They thought, that's weird. They set Dagon back up. The next morning, the same thing. And then after that, all the men of the city randomly got smote with tumors. They thought that was weird. And it was. So they moved the ark to a different city. And the same thing happened there. And eventually the Philistines were like, man, get this thing out of our country. So they put the ark on a cart, attached it to a couple of cows. Cows that had never been to Israel. And the cows miraculously walked the ark straight back to the Israelites. The Israelites didn't do a thing. The ark just showed back up. I think you'd agree. This was utterly amazing. What do you call a cow that gets stuck in a barbed wire fence? An utter disaster. That's so good. Thank you for the courtesy left, Justin. You know what the point is? When we have a God who fights for us like this, when they had a God who fought for them like God fought for them, why in the world are they demanding they have a king on top of him? After all they'd seen, they still didn't trust that God was enough. They're still saying, we need a king like all the other nations who can go out and fight our battles when they had God and and an army of angels fighting their battles. I want to dig in. Listen closely. In none of the stories I just shared with you from Israel's history, did they want to totally walk away from God. It's just that God wasn't enough. It wasn't that they didn't want God at all. It's that they needed something else besides God to feel safe and significant. And God told Samuel, that is an outright rejection of me. I want you to write this down. Rejection of God. It's not usually walking away from God. It's demanding something in addition to God. That's the essence of this text. Rejection of God. It's not usually walking away from God. It's demanding something in addition to God. We don't replace him as Christians. We don't replace him by subtracting him. We replace him by adding to him. So let me ask you, Christian, where have you done this? Where have you said? God is not enough. Where have you thought in your mind, God is great and all, but I need something else to ensure my significance. I need something else to ensure my happiness. Maybe you said, hey, God is great, but I've got to have a spouse like everybody else has a spouse or I'm never going to be happy. So you're asking for a spouse and that's not wrong. What's wrong is that you might be asking from fear and not faith. Fear of being alone, fear of being unwanted, fear of being unloved. And you feel because of the culture's pressure on you, you feel like a husband or a wife is the only way you can see that happening. Or you say, God, I've got to have some kind of career advancement like all the other people are getting. Forget content in whatever state you are. 
I've got to move on. It's not that it's wrong necessarily to desire these things. It's just that when you can't be happy without the professional advancement or the income increase that comes with it, it shows that you're being motivated by fear. I can never feel happy. I can never feel secure until I have this level of income or until I've achieved this position in the company. Or you say, God, I need to look like this. I look all around. I've got all these beautiful people and I'm not. There's nothing wrong with wanting to look better, but when that's driven by this fear that I can never feel good about myself until I look a certain way like all the other beautiful people look, then you know that your appearance is your king. I say, God, I have to have this healing. I don't even want to live any longer unless you heal me. And you might be motivated by fear in that request because you might be saying, I can't be happy. I can't feel secure unless I have good health in addition to a good God. Or unless I have a good job in addition to a good job, a a good God. Or or unless I have a, a, a better house in addition to a good God. Or unless I'm closer to family in addition to a good God. Or unless I get a pay increase in addition to a good God. Whatever that thing is that you demand in addition to God is your king. I want to be clear. God is a good God. And he loves to answer our prayers. And he loves to even give us the desires of our heart if those line up according to his will. And when he does give those things to us, we ought to thank him for it. We ought to worship him for it. And we ought to use those blessings to further his kingdom. But when you depend on those blessings in order to feel significant and secure, you become just like the Israelites who demanded a king so they could feel significant and secure like all the other nations. Are you kidding this? In the New Testament, James calls this, he gets, I think, kind of crude. He says, when you do this as a New Testament believer, here's what you're doing. You're praying like an adulterer. That's what he says. Look at it. James 4, verse 3 and 4. It's on the screen. Ye ask and receive not. Why? Because ye ask amiss. We would say it this way. You ask with improper motives. Why? That you may consume it upon your lust. Ye adulterers, he says. And adulteresses, know ye not that the friendship of the world is enmity with God? Whosoever therefore will be a friend of the world is not, is the enemy of God. What does that mean? Well, sometimes you don't receive blessings from the Lord because you don't ask. But sometimes you ask and you don't receive those blessings because you ask like an adulterer. That's severe. What does that mean? Well, think about it. Adultery is when one spouse finds certain delights in someone else, he or she should be finding in their spouse. Spiritual adultery is when you find happiness and security in other things that you ought to find in God. How do you pray like an adulterer then? Well, I risk sounding crude, but I have the authority of scripture behind me when I do. I want you to imagine in your mind a wife. I mean, a man approaches his wife and says, hey, babe, when we married, you pledged to fulfill all my romantic needs. And what I've determined I need romantically right now is your friend Susie. Can you arrange a date with her for me, please? I think it's safe to say that this man isn't going to receive a positive answer to his request. When they were married, his wife didn't pledge to be his hookup for romantic encounters. She pledged to be those things in herself. 
Here's the point. We pray like adulterers when we, like the nation of Israel, ask God for something or someone to fulfill a need in us that we should be finding in him. When I need the job and I need the health and I need the income and I need the paycheck and I need the relationship so that I can be happy. God is on his throne thinking this. Why are you not finding your happiness in me? Why do you got to have your way to be satisfied? Why do you got to be comfortable to be happy? Why does everything have to be convenient right now for you to smile? You have me. We ought to be like the shepherd David who said, the Lord is my shepherd. I shall not want. In other words, because I have God, I have everything I need. Yet a lot of us Christians say something like this. The Lord is my shepherd and he's great. But I still have some things I need and want in addition to him. And won't be happy until I do. See, we don't subtract him from our lives. We add to him. It's God plus something. It's God plus someone. Whatever is after the plus sign in your life today is your king. And God makes it clear that he considers adding to him an outright rejection of him. I want you to watch what he says next. Or just just listen to it. We, We read it, so I won't take time to read it again. But he tells Samuel, I want you to go talk to the people. And you can, you can listen to them. We may even give them what they want. But before we do, I want you to tell them everything that they're going to lose in this king. And, and Samuel, six different times, says the king is going to take, and the king is going to take, and the king is going to take, and the king is going to take. He's going to promise so much, he's going to deliver so little. And if you know the journey of King Saul, we studied it here on Sunday nights not too long ago. The king they demanded, King Saul, he was physically impressive. He was a great warrior. The narrator said that he was literally head and shoulder above everyone else. He was tall. He was strong. Yet he ended his own life at the, at the end of 1 Samuel. He, he, he committed suicide, basically, because of a battle that he could not win against the Philistines. Get this. He failed. Their king failed against the one enemy they were most afraid of. Their king failed to protect them against the one enemy that they all ran from, the Philistines. He promised so much, he delivered so little, and that's what happens with any king you give your heart to instead of God. Church, you need to listen. Every king but God enslaves even things that aren't inherently evil. Whatever king you give your life to other than God will take and take and take from you. They will overpromise, but they will underdeliver. Serving the king of success will enslave you. Found this interesting a, a book written by Arthur Brooks. It's called From Strength to Strength. The byline is this, finding success, happiness, and deep purpose in the second half of life. Arthur Brooks says that when you've built your identity on success in the front part of your life, when that's the king you've given your heart to serve, you're in for a miserable life in your 50s and 60s. 
He reasons it's because you can't go on succeeding at that age at the same pace you did in your 40s. So you start battling irrelevance and boredom and frustration. He says, if you define your self-worth in terms of your job title or, or, or professional position, or you quantify your success in terms of money or power or prestige, he said, you're actually fighting a battle which will get more and more frustrating year by year. Dr. Brooks talks about people who've achieved their lifelong dreams. They won some award, some accomplishment, earned some position, made some contribution to science. He talked about admirals who won the greatest battles, political leaders who made monumental contributions to human history. He said, you think they would say, I did it. I'm satisfied. I can sit on this and die happy. But he contends that it never works like that. It always leaves these people wanting more. In fact, he tells the story of Charles Darwin, who I know is not Christian's favorite scientist. But just historically speaking, he he might have made arguably one of the largest contributions to science in a millennium. So even if we disagree with him on a lot of things, and you should, he changed science. And you think after that, that Darwin would say, I'm good. I'll accomplish what I want to accomplish. But Brooks talks about how Darwin died a miserable man. Wanting so desperately to accomplish something more. He died frustrated that he was no longer at the forefront of the scientific revolution. Even though he had made dramatic changes or, and, and accomplishments and, and discoveries. Listen, listen. Success addiction works like other addictions. You medicate your boredom with work. You feel best at work because you feel most in control and most valuable when you're working. Your, your spouse may even complain about how much you work. But the truth is you have to work. That's when you feel best. Most in control. Most valuable. Most at peace. What drives you probably isn't the love for work. It's the success and significance that work brings. But this is so dangerous because workaholism in pursuit of success creates fear and loneliness. And fear and loneliness mean to be medicated. So you medicate fear and loneliness through more work in an attempt to gain the success that will make you feel significant. Americans everywhere, Christians everywhere are running harder and harder on the success treadmill. Trying desperately to hold on to what you feel like you're losing. And you start to realize over time that the king of success who promised you so much is delivering so little. It's not just success that enslaves. It's money that enslaves as well. And this isn't just preacher talk. Our secular culture agrees with this by now. It's cliche in America. Money doesn't satisfy. If anything, it makes it worse. John D. Rockefeller, who was asked after he made his billions, how much more money do you need to make to be happy? His His famous answer was this, one more dime. One Jewish philosopher said, wealth and fame are like seawater. The more you drink of them, the thirstier you become. Did you know romance is that way? I think of the woman at the well in John chapter 4 who had five husbands and still felt starved for love. Still searched for that special someone who could make her feel special and cherished and safe. So Jesus showed up at the well and showed her that just like she drinks water every day from the physical well and still ends up thirsty the next day. So she's been drinking of the well of romance to satisfy the deepest needs of her soul. And it's left her thirsty as well. I read where movie star Matt Dillon 
After one of his romantic movies had come out, he was asked in an interview why all these rom-com movies work, even though they all have the same predictable plot line. His answer was this, because people in America are relationship junkies. They go from relationship to relationship because they're really just scared of being by themselves. And so they give themselves to these relationships out of fear. And Matt Dillon said, that's what he's done with drugs. It's the same pattern some people follow in romance. That's why people become serial daters today. They can't be happy or feel complete or significant if they're not dating. Here's the truth. The arms that they're looking for are not the arms of a romantic partner. They'll never find security in that king. All that king does is take and then leaves us thirsty and exposed. They're looking for the arms of Jesus Christ. One special one I want to mention because it's right here in our text. Samuel specifically warns the people of Israel against putting their hope in human government. Governments are powerful temptations for our trust and our hope and our allegiance. And let me be clear, government is not a bad thing entirely. God ordained it. He ordained it to fulfill certain essential roles in our society. He ordained it to protect the weak. To pursue justice, to prosper our freedoms, to promote the common good. We know this, but listen, human governments tend to over-exaggerate what they can do for us. They say, put your hope in me, trust in me, give up more and more real estate in your life to me. I'll be your educator, I'll be your moral compass, give me everything and I'll take care of you. Regardless of your political position today, all forms of human government tend to over-promise and under-deliver. You know what conservatives and liberals in our country have in common? Hardly anything today. But here's what they have in common. They agree that if they're the ones in power, we can rest assured we'll be protected and we'll prosper. The Democrat says that and the Republican says that. And I'm not trying to say that all forms of government are equally bad. I'm saying they all overpromise, overdemand, and then underdeliver. So we shouldn't put our trust in or give absolute allegiance to any of them. That's why I often say that Christians shouldn't primarily identify with the elephant or the donkey, but with the lamb. The point is that all earthly kings that we demand, whether literal, like an actual king or president, or metaphorical, like success or money or romance, listen, are going to not only let us down, they're going to enslave us. Yet because we can be stubborn people, Sometimes the only way, and I'm coming to a close, the only way God can break our enslavement to our idol, our king, is to give it to us. That's what he did for the Israelites. He gave them what they wanted. He gave them their king. We read it in verse 19, the nevertheless. People refused and God said, give them their king. And if you know the story King Saul, you know his leadership was pitiful. He was an awful king Which makes the point that Israel finally got what they wanted. They got their king, but it didn't take long under Saul's reign before they ended up not wanting what they got. One of the most awful ways in which we can be judged by God is for him to finally give us what we want when what we want isn't what he wants. We'll pray for it. We'll maneuver ourselves to get it. We'll manipulate. We'll overwork. We'll refuse to listen to those around us. And finally God will say, okay, nevertheless... I'll give you the king you want. Why does he do that if he knows that king is bad for us? I think it's because God wants to create in us a desire for a better king. 
He knows that sometimes we won't realize everything we have in him until we see how much the king of our own making lets us down. That's why he let Israel have their king. He wanted to create in them a desire for a better king, his king, a king after his own heart. The first representative, the first symbol of that king is going to be David. We're studying the life of David on Sunday nights. But you know, David's not the ultimate fulfillment, right? The ultimate fulfillment is Jesus Christ. He's the king God wanted to give us and them all along. And listen, Jesus, he was a king, is a king, unlike King Saul. Saul took, but what did Jesus do? He gave. Of Jesus, it was said, for even the son of man came not to be ministered unto, not to take, but to minister and to give his life a ransom for many. Oh, let this sink in before we go home today. The Jewish people rejected Jesus as king. But unlike Saul, who murderously oppressed those who oppressed him, Jesus bore in his body the Jews' rejection. He willingly went to the cross under their treason, bearing their shame and their suffering. No other king has ever done that. When you say no to the king, he says no to you. Not Jesus. I love how Tim Keller says it. Jesus is the only king that if you obtain him will satisfy you and whom if you fell him will still forgive you. My. My. Why do we reject that king? Every other king says, please me, obey me. And if you do, you'll be happy. Money says, find me, you'll be happy. Marriage says that, family says that, success says that, fame says that. But they also say, disappoint me and I'll make you miserable. Money says, fail me and you'll never be happy. Marriage says, fail to get me and you'll always be lonely. That's what makes Jesus so remarkable. He's the only king who, if you obtain him, will satisfy you while simultaneously, if you fail him, will still forgive you. He's the only king you're truly safe with. As I close, I know I've quoted a lot of philosophers and historians today. I want to close with one more. Will Smith. The fresh prince of Bel Air himself. The one who slapped a grown man in the face at the Oscars and thought it was cool. In his biography, he said this. It's not going to be on the screen, so you just got to listen. You ought to read his biography, by the way. It's interesting. He said, I have done hundreds of interviews. And I've been asked thousands of questions. But the single greatest question I've ever been asked was by my 15-year-old son who started going to church with his grandmother. And he asked me this one day, Dad, what do you worship? Dismissively, Will Smith told him, well, Son, I worship God. Of course, I worship God. And then Will Smith said, my son asked me the, gr- the second greatest question I've ever been asked. Dad, are you sure about that? Can I ask you those same two questions? Who do you worship? Well, pastor, I worship God. I'm here. Question two. Are you sure about that? Is it just God? Is it just God? 
What's after the plus sign in your life? God plus this equals happiness? What's after the plus sign? Are you really sure that Jesus is your king? Is there anything else you're demanding of him? Something about which you've said, hey, God is great. But unless I have that, and until I have that, I'm not going to be happy. That is Christian idolatry. What other king have you given your heart to? The message of 1 Samuel 8 is this. Reject any king other than God. If you don't, you will be enslaved quicker than you ever dreamed. You might get to 50 and 60. And you've been chasing the carrot in your 20s, 30s, and 40s. And by the time you're 50 or 60, you're going back and say, that wasn't worth it. Because every king but God enslaves. My challenge with you is surrender or maybe resurrender your life completely to the true king who will always deliver what he promises. I have a feeling there might be somebody here today and you don't know that king personally. I know there are many here that you know the king, you're in a relationship with the king but you're worshiping something else. I want you to make that right. But there are some in here and you've never been made right with God. Christians, would you pray for those people now, even in your own heart? I don't know who you are. I don't know what brought you to Fellowship Baptist Church today. Could have been random. Could have been by by invitation. Could have been because your life got really hard and the first place you thought you should go is church. And that's a good thing. Glad you're here. It could be because you were guilted to come. I don't know why you're here, but if there's even one person in here who doesn't know the God I know, I want to invite you to know him today. He will change your life. That's not a fairy tale. It's not. It's not a you'll live happily ever after lie. It's not. It's real. God is the only king that can satisfy you. Quit chasing after other things. Have you trusted in his son, Jesus? Who came to this earth, lived a perfect life. Died on a cross, rose from the grave, exalted at the right hand of the throne of God. Making intercession, wants to make intercession for you. Wants to stand in your place before God. Wants to make you righteous before God. Have you trusted in Jesus? Is he your king of kings and lord of lords? If not, there'll be a pastor down here up front during the invitation. Why don't you come and learn more about how you can do that? If you're like, man, I can't. I hope hope you can. I want you to. You don't know if you're guaranteed. You know you're not guaranteed tomorrow. You don't know if you're going to be here tomorrow. You don't know if you'll have another Sunday. Come get that conversation started today. If not... Take a connection card out. On the back of the connection card, write believe, write your name and your phone number. Pastor David will follow up with you and have a private conversation with you in the next couple weeks. Give us an opportunity to introduce you to Jesus, please. That's why this church exists, to help people find and follow the King of Kings.
And we want to do that today. Christians, we should fill the altars, repenting of any other little K kings that we have in our life. Non-Christians, come forward and confess that you want Jesus to be your king. Stand to your feet.